Right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to where Tedra was just reading from there in Hebrews chapter 10. That is on page 1006 in some of the Bibles. One of the more popular shows on Netflix right now is uh, Lost in Space. And it is a TV show that's a remake of uh, a show from the 60s. There's been movies about it. There's been multiple TV shows um, about it. But one of the most well-known things about it is the catchphrase, uh, Danger Will Robinson. This is what the robot says to young Will Robinson. Anytime that there is danger nearby, anytime that there is an impending threat, he says, Danger Will Robinson, Danger Will Robinson. That's pretty much the way Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26, is. It is a call, danger, Christian. Danger, Christian. There is a threat. And that threat is abandoning the faith. It's apostasy. It is rejecting Christ. Now, as an aside... And listen real close to me for just a minute. Abandonment of the faith is the definition of a word, a term that you either have already come into contact with or you will come into contact with. And the term is deconstruction or deconstructing your faith. Now, there's an element of deconstruction or deconstructing your faith that's actually good for us to receive. That is the idea of deconstructing or removing our faith from a syncretism we sometimes do where we combine the gospel with politics, with, uh, you know, our cultural preferences. And we act as if it's a lump sum when it is not. The gospel is what saved us, saves us, not politics. Not cultural preferences. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that the Great Commandment, uh, Great Commission tells us to go and share. Go share the gospel. Not our particular preferences. Not our particular politics. Those things don't save. Jesus alone saves. So removing the syncretism uh, from how we sometimes try to take the gospel and add in things, smuggle in things with it, is something we do need to try to remove and just have the gospel. But the way, that's not the main way people use the word deconstruction. The main way you are going to encounter the word deconstruction or deconstructing the faith is in the context of like a total rejection of the faith based, listen, not necessarily on the truth or the untruth, the, the historicity of the gospel, not based on that, but rather based on someone's circumstances, someone's story which is like the postmodern definition of truth. Not reality, not logic, not actual truth, but how I feel about it. That trumps everything. How I feel. I redefine truth based upon my story, based upon how I feel. And here's the deal. We hear this, we see it around us as it comes to all kinds of different issues, and we think a lot of times... Like we are the first people ever in the history of humanity to engage in these type of things. But this is exactly what the author is confronting here. 
He's saying danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Christian. Don't reject Jesus. Don't deconstruct your faith based upon your circumstances, your story, what's going on in your life, your feelings. No, no, stay the course. Stay the course. And so that's the main idea today. From whatever you are going through today, don't reject Jesus based upon your present circumstances. Stay the course. That's the main idea. But to fully understand this passage, we need to see it in its full context because contextually it really kind of works like a ham sandwich. So you got, it does. So if you go back to verse 19, 19 through 25, that is your first piece of bread. And it is super encouraging that we really can draw near to God because of what Christ has done. So that's our first piece of bread, the encouragement. Then we get the meat, we get the ham, we get the warning, which is this warning here, don't reject Christ. And then we get another piece of bread in verses 32 through 39. And it's a good piece of bread. And it's an exhortation. Keep going. And so that's going to serve as our outline. We're going to first look at the encouragement. And then second, we'll look at the warning. And then finally, we'll work at, we'll look at the exhortation. All right. And so encouragement first. Look all the way back at verse 19. We've been going through this passage for a number of weeks, but we put it all together in this Big contextual understanding. Verse 19, read along with me. And therefore, brothers, again, based on everything he's been writing in chapters 8 and 9 and the first half of 10, since, he gives a summary statement, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, the curtain that was torn when Jesus died on the cross from top to bottom, saying we can go straight to God now through Jesus. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he's our mediator, let us draw near, like you really can, because of what Jesus did, let us draw near with a true heart, In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, again, immediately right before this heavy, weighty passage, we get this crazy encouragement that because of what Jesus did as our true and better high priest, and because of what Jesus did as the true and better sacrifice for sins, that because of that, we really can draw near to God. We really can hold fast our confession. We really can stir one another up to love and good works as the church, as the body of Christ. And so if you're going to boil all of that down to one single idea, the encouragement is this, and this is number one in your notes. The encouragement, there is a way to be made right with God. There is a way to be made right with God. 
And that way is Jesus. I mean, John 14, Jesus says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is the way to be made right with the Father. And so here's the reality as plain as I can make it. God is holy and we're not. We are sinners. And therefore, we are impure and we cannot come to God on our own because He is holy, pure, and we are impure. We are sinners. And we are, as sinners, deserving of God's wrath against sin and evil because He's just and He's loving. Sin must be punished. He would not be a loving God to not punish evil. Yet we are eaten up with it. And the fact that we deny that, I'm not that bad, is kind of proof of it. We're depraved. We're sinners. We deserve condemnation. But as we read together this morning, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so this is the whole point of the Gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners. And He did it by being our substitute. First, He substituted Himself in in life. He lived the life that we haven't. A life without sin. Then He was our substitute as it relates to the penalty for sin. What we deserve to pay, our condemnation, Jesus died the death we deserved. The death for sin. And then He rose again to give us a gift we could never earn. Forgiveness of sin. And so friends, Jesus has made the way. And if you've never personally trusted in Him to save you from your sins, do so today. And don't put it off. Don't reject Him. If He is knocking on the door of your heart, if He is calling you, don't spurn that call. Turn. Repent. Believe. He's made a way for you. He didn't have to, but He did. Because He's rich in mercy. He has made a way, but everyone look right at me. He is the only way. There's not another way. Like that, I mean, that's what Jesus himself says. I am the singular way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? And that singularity, there's a word for this, this is called the exclusivity of Christ. That there is one way, okay, this is the way. And our culture struggles with this. Now, most folks don't really struggle with 
you know, vague general spirituality or prayer or even the supernatural, but what they do struggle with is the claim that one religion is right and all the others are wrong. That one sacred scripture is right and all the others uh, are wrong. That one path to God is right and all the others are wrong. And so people are like, Mm-mm, no, that, mm, that is so arrogant of you to say. To say that you're right and all of those are wrong. That is so arrogant to believe that, that your religion is right, every other one is wrong, and try to convert others to your religion. That is so arrogant. But the question is, says who? Who says that's arrogant? Like if, if, if what I just said is true, that there is only one way then it's actually loving of me to tell you that. Now, I can be a jerk in how I do it. We don't want to do that. We want to be loving. But the truthfulness of it still stands. If what I just said is true, then it's actually loving of me to say that. If it's not true, then it's wrong of me to say that. But just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. And just because you may think that all religions are essentially equal doesn't mean that my statement is automatically arrogant any more than yours would be. Tim Keller, as he always does, sums it up with just a couple of words and he does it so well. He writes in his book, The Reason for God, it's no more arrogant or narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that they're all equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion. Everybody is. But in different ways. But according to Jesus of Nazareth, okay, a historical person who lived 2,000 years ago, Beyond dispute, historical person, and beyond dispute, died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And if you want to do the research yourself, you will find, beyond a reasonable doubt, hold up in a court of law, beyond dispute, he really did rise again. According to him, he says, God has made a way, I am that way, and there's no other way. But what is so remarkable is how inclusive this exclusive claim is. It's totally inclusive of anyone who would repent and believe. So many other religions and whatnot are, 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 are defined by race and gender and ethnicity and culture or this, that, and that. And Christianity, inclusive of anybody who would simply repent and believe there are no prerequisites to the gospel. The hope of the gospel is totally inclusive of all people in all places at all times who will simply repent and believe. The, the, the dividing line is belief or lack of belief. That's it. There's no other dividing line. And what's so encouraging about all of this, is that God doesn't begrudgingly admit people who repent and believe into the kingdom as if Jesus found some, some kind of loophole in the law or did some sort of you know, plea bargaining and, and squeaked us by the judge. That's not the way this works at all. God came after us. 
for God so loved the world. You see where it starts? That He gave His only Son. So God Himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. Like God chose to do this. And friends, this is grace. God's not under some constraint or coercion that forces Him to send Jesus. No, out of love, because He wanted to. Because He is rich in mercy and grace, He chose to send Jesus to rescue sinners. Adopt us into His family and then love us with a never stopping, never giving up, continuous, always and forever love. And so banish from your mind forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into His kingdom. It is God who sent Jesus. It is He who put forth Christ for us. And when we trust Him, like the prodigal's father, He brings out a fattened calf, throws a robe on us, and welcomes us home. That's an encouragement. We really can draw near to God. He loves us like that. Okay, there is a way to be made right with God. All right? That's the encouragement. But here comes the meat. Here comes the danger Will Robinson part. Here's the warning. Number two in your notes. The warning. Rejecting the way has eternal consequences. So number one, there is a way to be made right with God. Number two, rejecting the way has eternal consequences. And this is what verse 26 is talking about. Look at it with me. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, we need to be real careful here. Because sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth has a specific meaning. Okay? It's not referring to just any kind of sin out there. It's not referring to just any kind of sin you might even deliberately do. Like, I know it's sin. I'm going to do it anyhow. It's not referring to just anything like that. Now, obviously, we're called to fight sin. We are called to constantly be putting off the old man, putting on the new man. We're called to make war, wage war on our sin, to be growing in Christ's likeness. That is an obvious thing from all of Scripture, but that's not what this passage is talking about. What the deliberate sin the author is referring to here, the one for which there no longer remains a sacrifice, is the deliberate rejection of Christ. Rejecting the way that He has made for us to be made right with God. And danger, Will Robinson, listen to me. The author is writing this to believers. He's not writing this to unbelievers. His point, he's not trying to blast idolaters or those who have already forsaken Christ. His point is to warn Christians not to defect from their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's talking about apostasy. 
He's talking about deconstruction. He's talking about a person who has made a profession of faith, supposedly, right? They've made a profession of faith in Christ, and yet at some point they decide, I don't need Jesus to make me right with God. The work of Christ is not necessary for me. And they've deliberately and utterly rejected Christ and His substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I want to be clear about a couple of things. One, he's not talking about like losing your salvation. If, you, if, if The people who deconstruct, and leave, they, they never had it in the first place. That's one. Two, he's also not talking about spiritual infidelity. Like being unfaithful to Jesus at times. Because if that was the case, then Peter would not have ever been restored. After he denied Jesus, denouncing him three times with curses. So he's not talking about spiritual infidelity. He's also not talking about someone who falls into sin and even remains there for a period of time. Nor is he talking about someone struggling with doubts or someone who's become a bit disillusioned for a while, cold, dry, in a rut. They're just wrestling with it all. No, what he's talking about is someone who has played church for maybe their whole life. But now has made a determinative and final rejection of Christ. And he's just going a bit captain obvious saying, if you've rejected the only sacrifice that there is for sin, then where else are you going to go? There's not another one. And so therefore there's no hope. Therefore, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin because you rejected it. Instead, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's the outcome. Rejecting the way has eternal consequences. And then he makes an argument from lesser to greater. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, and he gives three things, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, And has outraged the spirit of grace. In other words, what he's saying is that God's gospel justice is more exacting than justice under the wall. That like if people were stoned in the Old Testament for rejecting Yahweh, how much more would they be judged for rejecting Christ? And so the whole point is like our profession of faith isn't something to play games with. And abandoning Christ, deconstructing your faith, has eternal consequences. Verse 30. For we know Him who said, and he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's what God says. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so this is heavy. 
this is weighty, this should be a little bit frightening. God's talking wrath here. God's talking hell here. Eternal conscious torment. And so this very much needs to be a danger Will Robinson moments for us. Okay, danger. Be warned. Check your heart because, listen, apostasy can only be recognized after it happens. And you can't see it in the midst of it. Everyone looks the same. It can only be recognized after it happens. Beforehand, everyone looks the same. Like these people look they are, like they are actually a believer. But then over time, it becomes apparent, oh, they actually aren't. They never were. Over time, it becomes apparent. And there's a rejection. And so the author is giving a hard warning here to be careful. I mean, point blank, he is speaking to someone in this room, watching on the live stream right now, who has made a profession of faith, but who down the road might repudiate Christ finally and forever. Not that they lose their salvation, but they prove they never had it in the first place. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't turn back. Don't shrink back. Don't fall away. Like, check your heart. Don't reject don't turn away. Don't deconstruct. That leads to destruction. Instead, and this is number three in your notes, the exhortation, continue in the way with endurance and faith. Okay? Continue in the way with endurance and faith. And so you've got, number one, there is a way to be made right with God. Number two, rejecting the way has eternal consequences. But the exhortation of this passage is, don't do that. Continue in the way with endurance and faith. Because the warning here is just that. It's a warning. It's not what the author is expecting for his readers. He expects them to press on. He expects them to continue on. And so he calls them, first of all, to remember what has happened in the past. So look with me at verse 32. All right. So he just came out of that hard warning. Now we're on to the encouragement, the, the, the next piece of bread in this sandwich we got. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened... So after you made a profession of faith, after you were regenerated, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Like you did that. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And so the author is telling them, hey, remember what you've been through. Remember that. You, you remember those days after you became a believer and all the persecution you faced? And all the persecution that those people around you faced. And, and remember how you ministered to your brothers and sisters in the midst of that? You remember all that? 
And friends, what did, what, what, what did you do then? You endured. That's what you did. You, you persevered in the face of difficult times. All right? you, you didn't turn away from Jesus then. Don't turn away now. No matter how you feel, hang in there. And friends, it is this remembrance of past graces that fuels present hope. Okay, remembrance of God's past graces, His past faithfulness should fuel present hope for us. Like when you think about how God has been faithful to you in the past, and just very concretely, how He brought you to this moment in 2022, all that you have been through in your life, how He's persevered you through storms, it should have sunk you. He's brought you through crushing grief. Disappointment, heartache, tragedy. Mixed in with joy, absolutely, sure, yeah. But you, when you remember that, okay, all that he did, then remember this as well. He's not going to just stop being faithful. He's not just going to quit now. Oh, he handled all this. Thank you, Lord, but oh, you probably won't handle this. Let the past faithfulness fuel present hope. He who promised is faithful. It's part of who he is. He can't not be true to himself. And so, let that fuel your present hope and endurance. Because that's what we need to continue on. So verse 36. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And so, keep pressing on. Endure. The promise is coming. When's the promise coming? Verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Friends, Jesus is coming again. And he will make right all that's gone wrong in this broken world. Sin and death and grief and sorrow and disappointment and pain will be no more. And we will be with Jesus. He will make all things new. And so press on. Cling to Christ. Keep the faith. Keep going. Hang on. And to illustrate that point, we're going to get chapter 11 which is just a litany of people from the Old Testament who kept the faith in the face of difficulty, in the face of insurmountable circumstances. He's just going to run through it. All these people who kept the faith. 
despite their circumstances, despite setbacks, despite their own sin, despite the sin of others against them, despite torture, despite ridicule, despite poverty, despite grief, despite depression, they kept going. Friends, you do the same. And so, yes, while this passage we've looked at today is a danger Will Robinson passage. Like, be careful. It's also a little bit of a bait and switch passage. Because by the time you get to the end of it, you see that the whole thing's actually not so much a warning as it is a great big exhortation to keep going. God's people in the past have. He sustained them. He will sustain you. And I can't think really of a better exhortation here in the middle of February. And when I was writing this, I wrote, when it's often dark and cold and wet. Now today we got a beautiful day. But February so often is just dark and cold and wet. And I mean, I can't think of a better exhortation for us to keep in our minds with a threat of war in Europe. Supply chain issues here and a lack of workers. Sarah and I went on a date. We were trying to go to the movies. We went to grab some Starbucks and it was closed at 7. There's just not enough workers. And with people trying to redefine truth with their stories and their feelings and an ever-increasing pressure on believers to turn away from Christ... I can't think of a better exhortation for us than to keep going. Just do the next thing that God puts in front of you. Because God accomplishes the extraordinary through the ordinary. He doesn't call us to necessarily do huge things. Just do what He's asked us to do. Ordinary means of grace. And so let's keep going. You've endured in the past... God has been faithful, endure now, and watch God continue to be faithful and continue to prove that, yes, indeed, Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. We lack but you own the cattle on 10,000 hills we are mere creatures you are creator of all things and we praise you that you have made a way for us who are sinners You've made a way through Christ. And Father, we just praise you because had you not come after us, we would never come after you. You loved us first. And so, Father, would the fact that you've made a way fuel us, the the, the fact that you have been faithful, that you have 
stayed true, that you have held us up. Fuel us with hope for whatever we're facing right now. And we would not turn back. We would not shrink back. But we would continue forward in faith. Not perfect, but pursuing. hold us fast. Father, help us to look and live with an eternal mindset that looks forward to the coming of Christ, that looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth when we receive the fullness of the promise that we will never have here and now. Father, help us to not try to have an over-realized eschatology in this life. As wonderful as it can be at times, We have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And we look to that. We look to you when we are fully present. Forever with you. Father, help us to have an eternal mindset. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.